Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to the third chapter of Romans? Over the last three sets of sermons uh, that I've shared with you, we've been in Romans chapter 3 in the middle of the chapter, and it was starting in verse 31 that Paul, in the most clear possible terms, sets out the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that can save our souls, the gospel that a Christian pants for, and the only gospel that can save a soul, the only gospel that can take a person from death into life. And it's interesting that that same gospel that saves you is the only thing that you want after that. It's the only thing you want. You take everything else, talk about everything else somewhere else, And I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus stepping in front of me and representing me completely before God so that I don't have to represent myself before God. I don't have to be good that God would accept me. I don't have to pretend to you or to him or to anybody who I am. I can simply rest on that pillow of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is also a strong stick that will correct me when necessary. The the gospel teaches me to say no to myself. The gospel makes me love other people. The gospel makes me alive. And it's interesting that, that you think that it's something that I already know or I already did. And it, you, to a believer, you pant when you don't have the gospel. And when you have the gospel, you remember of how hungry you used to be. It is truly amazing. So I want to read from verse 21, and we'll begin um, my comments in verse 25. Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all. And upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So we come now, I think, to the center, to the pivot, to the hinge upon which everything in our life revolves. This idea that God had an idea on his own. You do not beg God to have some idea that he did not have. It was his intention to save us. It was his thought. It was he worked out the universe in such a way that we could be right with him, completely knowing who we are even now and what we certainly have been in the past. God did it all for us. And this verse says, it says that God set Jesus, that's we, who we were just talking about, faith in Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. 
Now, you have to worry a little bit about words like this. This is a word nobody uses. This is a word that's not in our common dictionary. If you were to ask 100 people, it would be very possible that every 100 people would not know what this means. It is very possible that every Christian who is asked would not know what, what it means. But I'm going to, to argue to you that it is the most important thing that's ever happened to you in your life. This idea is the gospel. This is what saves your soul. And to understand it will create a hallelujah in your heart, like an electrocution that you can't even handle. It's overwhelming to us when we recognize what God did, why he did it, and how he did it, and to the price he paid for it, that we might enjoy freedom in him. So I need to define this. If you were, there are many Bible translations. There are several dozen in English, more than any other world language. And some people scorn that. They scowl at that. They think that somehow people are trying to change something so that they can get their own little political agenda through, that you should be afraid. But all, all that's happening is you're taking the, the Greek New Testament, in this case, the Hebrew Old Testament, and you are putting it in the language of the people in such a way that it can be understood in right now, whatever the right now is, and the wherever, wherever that is. Um, one of my favorite Bible translations um, Melissa actually has, it's called the Word on the Street Bible. And it was written by a youth pastor in um, um, Liverpool or one of, the, one of the real big British cities, real dirty British cities. And uh, all of the kids that he ministered to were real rough city kids, street kids. And so he wrote the New Testament in street language, which I just absolutely, you could just belly laugh at it. When you get to Romans, uh, or when you get to uh, John 1, where it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, he said, God became a man and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and in some ways, there is nothing wrong with that. If you're going to translate the Bible, there is a couple different ways to do it. You have, you have versions like the King James, which I'm reading from, and the New American Standard, uh, and a couple others, maybe three others, that their philosophy is if you have a hard term in the Greek New Testament, in the Greek language, and it's difficult, and especially if it's difficult to the people now, that it's not a common word, you just say it anyway. You write it and make you look it up. If you write it, you just write it, okay? This verse says, whom God has set forth, meaning Jesus Christ, God set Jesus Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So if you're going to be the new American standard, you would simply say propitiation. It's an English word, and if no one knows what it means, we've got dictionaries in this world that you can look it up. So when I went to the dictionary, because if you're going to deal with words, you deal with a dictionary. When I went to the dictionary, I was delighted because Merriam-Webster.com on the, on the Internet not only shows all the words that are in the English language, but it shows how many times people looked up those words, which I just thought was wonderful. 
This word, propitiation, is within the top 1% of all English words looked up in the, New Te- in, in the dictionary, which I just say, praise the Lord. Because what that means is that enough people have come to this word and saying, what does that mean? And they care. Like there's something in them, they're like, I want to know what this means. God has somehow showed me this is important for you. This is more important for you than what you ate for breakfast or who you talked to on the telephone today. This is more important to you than, and even though you may be 56, Brian, it does not matter. Look it up. Okay? So when I look it up, this is what, let me just show you some of the dictionary answers I gave you. The first one I looked up was uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. I kind of consider that to be the absolute foundation dictionary of the English language. Okay, because Americans aren't English and we're speaking English. So I looked up the Oxford English. And it says it defines to propitiate as a verb to win or regain the favor of someone. Okay, so I, so I just look at the scenario in my life. Has there been ever a person in your life that when you met them, they loved seeing you? Like they, there was joy to see you. They wanted to talk to you. They, they were excited and they weren't frauds. They were, they were not faking it. They loved talking to you, loved being around you. Okay? When you have that person, you feel very safe around that person. You feel you could be yourself around that person, that it's not that you're not on a job interview with them. Do you know what I mean? So if you have their favor, that their heart is towards you, you do not feel that somehow you have to make up for something or you have to undo something. Or if you only could behave a certain way or act a certain way or make them think you're a certain way, they would like you. You feel free there. Okay, That is favorably disposed. When you have a person like that, The English word is propitious. They're propitious towards you. You feel like they really were glad to see you. Really. And it's interesting that people like that you want to see. Like, I can't wait to see people who treat me joyously. Okay? Um, And it's not that they have to talk about me. I never want to talk about me. But when they just don't hate my guts or, or just don't hold me at arm's length or just could care less that I'm alive but actually want to be around me, that's propitious. So when you go back to Oxford English, it says propitiate or to be propitious towards or propitiation is all these ideas, is to win or regain the favor of someone. So someone that used to trust you but then found out who you really were and now would never have anything to do with you again. And every time you come around, it's just cold ice. You're just afraid, like... You just immediately start sweating. You immediately clam up. You immediately go quiet. I, I know you're humans. You have to be like me. I mean, that's you've been around people that you know that it's not that they're somehow misinformed about you. They're truly informed about you, and they know you better than you wanted them to. And now you just feel like slinking off when you're around them. In order to propitiate them, You have to do something in order to make them regain, you have to regain their favor. That's what propitiate is. Jesus told a parable once, and he said, when you're walking on the road with your adversary, be very, very careful to make sure you clear yourself with him before you get to the courthouse. When you get to the courthouse, it's all over. 
he will hand you over to the jailer and the jailer will put you in prison and you'll never get out. So if you have an adversary that's about to sue you, make sure that by the time you get to the courthouse, everything is okay. Now, do you know he was talking about himself? He's talking, to him. He's talking about him. I've offended a holy God, really have, and I've done it every second of my life, all of my life. And when I tell people that God loves the world, I'm not lying to them. I'm not faking them out. But I have an adversary, and that adversary is my judge. And if I do not allow him to be favorably disposed towards me, if I don't win his favor, as soon as I go to the jailer, it will be over for me forever. And so, so when you get to Webster's Dictionary, they add a little bit of a twist. They, their idea of propitiate is to sacrifice something that appeases, there's another big word, a deity. So you suddenly now go all the way back to the beginning of time where people, all of the different peoples, recognized they still had their conscience that God gave them. It had years and decades and centuries before been so squished that they weren't right with God at all, but they knew that they were wrong with God. They knew it. Okay? There is no one. Everyone knows if you're not right with God. Everyone. You know right now if you're sitting here not right with God. Your conscience is screaming to you without a breath All your life, you are not right with God. You're not right with God. Your adversary will take you to court and you will lose. And you just basically say, I don't want to think about it. I'll I'll, I'll think about that later. I'm not going to think about that right now. It's too hard. It's too heavy. It's too deep. So when Webster says to sacrifice, that is human beings. Everybody. I would put every single living person in this idea. Everybody knows you're not right with God. So I must do something. And that's logical. It makes perfect sense. I've got to sacrifice something. I have to do something. I have to give something. I have to be something. I have to be good, or I have to give money, or I have to uh, do charity, or I have to be kind, or I have to not do what I was going to do. And then it just gets worse. You think if the, the crops, I need the crops so desperately that I will sacrifice my child to make sure that it rains next, next March? It happens now. It has happened for centuries because everybody knows that if you're not right with God, but yet there is an angry God. And see, there is the ancient use of this word, that it's not just a deity. It's not just a someone stronger than you, but it's an angry God, someone who's opposed to you, someone who is against you, not someone who is neutral to you. I like acquaintances. I like people who don't hate my guts because they don't know me, right? I once heard someone say, um, I've never wrecked a major airliner, and I've never killed anyone on the operating table. You know, as though somehow that's good. But I'm sure he wasn't a pilot or a surgeon. It's that idea. If you're neutral to me and you don't have anything against me because you don't even know me and don't care, that's not an adversary. But an angry God that needs to be appeased, that there's somehow an urgency about that. There's a threat in your life to that. So the Bible use of this word, the reason it's simply just put there and left there, is that it carries this meaning of turning away God's wrath from us, okay, and then restoring me into God's 
uh, favor. Now, that begs the, the question, is that the case of me? Is the normal case, the default case, is that God's wrath is upon me? Because I would say most people in America would not agree with that statement, that God's wrath is upon you. But according to the scriptures, that is actually what it says. When, you, when a person is saved, think it through. What are you saved from? When a person is saved, they're saved from the promised wrath of God against them. Do you see, we mentioned before in 21 where it says there's a righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, which shows that God is always consistent with himself. He never, ever bend. He doesn't grade on a curve. He loves himself. He loves his own character so much that he promotes it. He publishes it. He sends it out. He continuously rehearses it. And everything about him loves the way he acts. That means his law showed who he was. So when he gave his law, that purpose of that law was to show you God's character. What would God do if he were you? That's what the law did. Now, the law was specific in thousands of ways, and you, you have to say, okay, what does that mean? How is God like this? Or how is this like God as you look into his law, as you look into the law that we don't keep in order to gain our, our salvation? but that is still God's will. This is how God would live, and you should live this way. And a a saved person pants in order to live in God's will. They don't want to live completely opposite of what God is. So what what that does is he showed his will, and then he judges according to that law. To a person, to a person when they go to, to judgment, will be judged against God himself not against the person you think you're better than or not even against who you think you are, but against God, his character. And so that righteousness has been described or revealed through his word. And then this verse in 21 says, a righteousness of God has been revealed that has nothing to do with you obeying anything. It's the fact that Jesus came and lived, and he lived perfectly, completely mastering the law in your place. And that God is perfectly satisfied with him for that reason and only for that reason. Now, why wrath? If God then says, this is my standard, and all that are mine, every creature of mine, will be judged on this standard, it is not unrighteous at all for God to judge. And his judgment is wrath. And I don't think people want to hear it. It's too horrible. The, if you think about it all the way to the end, it's too terrifying. Okay? But see, a wrathless God, if you want, I mean, there's so many that want. They just want a wrathless God. They want us all to just be in a big group hug as though there's no, there's no reason. But yet, if you claim that, Jesus died for no reason. There is no reason for the death of Christ if God did not have wrath. And if you have a wrathless God, you have no God. If you have a wrathless God, a God who would actually see a horrible event, a horrible crime, a horrible abuse. Some of you know too well what I'm talking about. Something that should never have happened, should never have happened, should never have happened. And God who could do anything knew about it. If God does not judge that, if God does not say 
that was wrong and I will judge it. He is no God. He is a monkey. And this God of this Bible is not a monkey. The God of the scriptures, the father of Jesus, killed his son because it cost that much to make us right with him. So this is, this when a, when a believer cries for mercy, that's what he's crying for. Please don't give me what I deserve. That's mercy. If God gives me mercy, he's going to give me what I don't deserve. What I don't deserve is freedom and liberty and freedom from his wrath. And when he promises a believer everything, that's what he's promising. I will treat you as though you never sinned, and I will not treat you as though you did sin what you did. Do you see it? It, It's wrath is important. And without your understanding of wrath, you will not value Jesus at all. Jesus will be whatever other people think he is. He will be the teacher, the one you should listen to, the wise guy. But he will not be your savior because it takes the Son of God to save you because God's wrath is upon all of us. This is Deuteronomy 29. The law was given, and this was 29. This is what will happen if you break it. Okay, The covenant between you and God, the one that made God your adversary, this is what it says. The Lord will not spare him. This is Deuteronomy 29, starting with verse 20. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smote against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall be at lie upon him. The Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate unto him the evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. It goes on to say, when your children look and say, how awful, or, or foreigners who are just crossing in the, on the highway look and say, what did he do here? Why did he treat this people this way? It'll say because they rejected the covenant of God their father. It is not unrighteous for God to be wrathful. This is, this is Nahum. Um, Nahum, this is the first verse of Nahum. A lot of people don't like the prophets. They think God's too cranky. They don't like that kind of God. They want the God that they invented. They want the God where, you know, everybody's just kumbaya. And this is what the real God, the God who reveals himself says. The Lord is jealous. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Do you see? God, because he's holy and because he's consistent with his own holiness all the time, he has to judge evil. He has to. He would not be holy if he didn't. He has to direct itself. So God's wrath directs itself against evil. Okay? It's what the reaction of holiness is to wickedness. It's, it's automatic. It's not something like, ooh, I'm mad, I'm going to do something. When I'm wrathful, it's all sin. When I'm mad and I'm going to, like, put my foot down and I think I've got the right to say what I want and I'll, you're going to listen to me, there's not anything about my wrath that has anything but sin in it. But God, when he's wrathful, is only being fair, just, and right. It's completely different. That's why you leave it to God. When someone has offended you, you leave it to God. Don't even try to participate in God's judgment on that person. You leave it to the Lord. Okay? He can judge. You don't have to because you're not good enough. 
When you are righteous, you can't, you can't say, I'm going to be righteously indignant. Here's the problem with that. By me trying to somehow judge in God's place someone else who was wrong, and me being wrong in the process, do you understand how ridiculous that is? Okay? You must let God do it. Then God will do it. And a believer will rejoice in that. At the very end of the book of Revelation, before you go to heaven, the last thing you will see on this planet is the wicked being cast into the pit. And you will rejoice in it. It will be something that, though it could be, it's frightening beyond your ability to even handle it, you will say, hallelujah, it's so right. It's so right that God did that, that his enemies will be dealt with. Okay? This is Psalms 5. For thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thy hate all the workers of iniquity. This is the only scripture that has ever existed. This is not something that you make say what you want it to say. It says that God hates these people. This is Psalm 7. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he doesn't turn, he will whet his sword and bend his bow and made it ready. He hath prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth the arrows against the persecutors. Wicked every day. This is God against all. Do you see? Let me take you to Ephesians. Will you turn? This is one I'd like your eyes on. Will you go to Ephesians chapter 2? One of the most comforting. The girls and I read this uh, uh, when we did our devotions the other day. And it sent, the back of my hair stood up. It was just one of those, whoa, what is this saying? It's so amazing. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, okay? And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, when in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as others. As others. So we are the one that needs God to be propitious to us. We are the one. Okay? So if you look at this verse and you say, whom God, Jesus, whom God set forth to be the propitiation, what that's doing is that God is meeting your greatest need. And that that is his own wrath will be turned away from us. And his favor and his kind smile will be towards us. Okay? Now, the word propitiation is only in the Bible twice. It's here in Romans. And it is in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, it's hidden. Okay? Because you have to remember, this word is in Greek. And when you put it in English, it's not always going to be the same word. Will you go to Hebrews 9, 4? And see, let's play a game. See if you can find the word propitiation. Okay? Now, propitiation means to turn away God's wrath and make his face shine for, uh, favorably towards us. This is 9.4 of Hebrews. He's talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. So he's talking about the different rooms. He's talking about the, the outer room now. It says, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round with gold wherein was the golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant 
and over the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak particularly. Do you see? I don't see the word propitiation there, but it is absolutely the same word, same exact word. So what is the word where God would be able to look away with his wrath and turn his face kind? It's mercy seat. It's mercy seat. Mercy seat was a lid. Now, I don't know, because suddenly now I'm really interested. It was a lid of a box made out of two inches of gold with two hammered cherubim angels on top. And the angels covered their faces with two of their wings and overshadowed the lid of the box with the other two wings. Now, you have to remember, let's go back to Exodus quickly. This is Exodus 25. God is telling them to make the box, and he's going to tell about the box. So this mercy seat that's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 21 says this, Thou shalt put a mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give thee, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubims which are on the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment to the children of Israel. You should put a lid on this box, and I will meet with you there. You want to meet with God? There was one place in heaven and earth that he will meet with you on the lid of this box. So then you go, why? I'm, I'm lost. Why would it be there that God would meet with you? Because he said, I will dwell above the mercy seat, between the two cherubims. Later, the Hebrew word for that is called Shekinah. There was actually a glowing orb of energy of glory. I don't know. I mean, what do I know? Above that lid, between those two wings, continuously, and it wasn't just above the box. It went all the way into the universe because above that tent, anybody that was there could see that during the day, it was a whirling cloud pillar, and at night, it was, a cl- it was fire swirling in a cloud. And when the Egyptians saw that, they, it was pitch dark, and when the Hebrews saw it, it was light at the same time. Is that amazing? The two people can look at God's glory at the same time, and God's people sees light, and the, everybody else sees nothing, sees a void. That's amazing. So not only was God above this lid, but he was above the lid all the way to heaven, wherever that is, all the way into the far reaches of the universe. If you could pan back and see the the whole Milky Way, you would just see a laser beam all the way to whatever heaven is. I mean, that's that's a concept that I can't even imagine. And it's amazing because what was in between God and the inside of the box? The lid. What was in the box? It said it in in Hebrew. It said there was three things in the box. Do you know? Do you know what was in the box? The law. Two tables of stone written in God's own finger, and a pot of manna where he gave bread every day, and Aaron's rod, which was a stick, cut off of an almond tree, that the next morning there was blossoms, flowers, and almonds, because God gets to pick who his priest is. Everybody thinks, I need to be that. I can do that. I I don't know why you're making me not be it. I want to be one too. No. God gets to say who the Savior of man is. God does. Okay, And it's really interesting that that law is not the first law, was it? On the first day that Moses came down the mountain, 
his people were dancing naked around an idol that they had made. Out of all the wealth that they had taken from Egypt, they turned it into a calf and were dancing and parading and sacrificing in front of it. And Moses comes down the first day after they said, we'll obey everything the covenant says. And in his frustration and rage and and, and anxiety, he smashes the law. Imagine rocks breaking on rocks. That's what he did. He, they literally broke the covenant on the first day. So, so Moses was called to the top of Sinai a second time. And God carved those words a second time on those covenants and they put it in the box. So when this holy God is looking into the box, he is seeing his, an eternal law that's exactly the same as he is same character as he is, that is unbroken. Do you see Jesus in this box? The unbroken law in the box, the broken law in, in pieces, rubble, where we tried and failed. Jesus tried and did not fail, thank the Lord. He did it. And so in between this, this law, unbroken law, and God's holiness is a lid. If that lid were not there, we would have been destroyed. For God, holy God, to see his law and see us, we would have been destroyed. There would be no other way. The adversary on the way would not have been reconciled with us. But there was a lid there. And once a year, the high priest came in with a bowl of goat's blood. And he poured it on the lid. And underneath the light was blood. And he looked at his law 24 hours a day through the blood of the atonement. So somehow Jesus is the lid, because that's what propitiation is. God set him forth to be a propitiation. When I look this word up in the Hebraic dictionary, which is the Jewish dictionary, it doesn't even say propitiation. It's even worse. It says the propitiatory. And I'm like, gracious, I'm not smart enough for this. The propitiatory is the place that you make the propitiation, the place that you do something that would cause God's wrath to be turned away. So somehow... Jesus is the place that God's wrath is turned away, and he is the offering that makes God's wrath turned away because this says he was set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Jesus died, and for a simple believer to say, that is sufficient for a holy God. Now, because that is what the gospel has taught you. The gospel has taught you, put your trust, your full trust, Everything that's in your life, put all of it in one basket. And that basket is that a holy God is satisfied at the death of Christ in your place. That's the gospel. That is absolutely the gospel. Christ in place of me. That's the gospel. So this says that he looked through the atonement and the atonement was Jesus. He looked at the lid and the lid was Jesus. He looked at the unbroken law and the unbroken law and the pot of manna and the bud the budded rod, was all Christ. God's looking at Christ accepting us for that reason. We are his bride. We are married to him. God treats us kindly because of that. And it's not just that he's no longer cranky because we're just as sinners as we've been. It's the fact that all of God's looking is at Jesus instead of us. He is our captain. He's our shield. Don't think that Jesus is like Wonder Woman, clicking the, with her bracelets, like that God is somehow raging towards me and Jesus jumps in front of him somehow to, to deflect 
Propitiation is not deflection. It's not taking something and sending it in some other direction. Jesus stood in front of us, and he absorbed the wrath of God fully. He took it and took it and took it. What would be eternal damnation? Eternity. You wouldn't pay the interest on the first offense you ever made to God in an eternity of suffering and misery. And Jesus took all of it for every one of his people. He absorbed it. A nuclear explosion burst with a trillion megatons of energy in front of you directly. And Jesus stood in front of you and took all of it. When you think of your Savior, you think of either some helper, some therapist that's helping you have a nice life, or some kind of a, a, a mealy, uh, easy, easy thing to say, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus. That is, that's an offense. Jesus is everything for you. And what happened is he stood in front of you and took it. He absorbed it to its very last dregs. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating blood. And his prayer was, God, if, this, if you're possible, let this cup pass. What was in the cup? The wrath of God was in the cup. And he took it all the way to the bottom. He drank every grape seed and every grape leaf all the way to the bottom. And then it was 12 o'clock. He was hanging on the cross. He was hanging on the cross. And it was over. And then the sun goes out. And the ground starts shaking. He had already absorbed all of the wrath that God had towards us. Then God rejected him. It was then he rejected him. He stood there for three more hours in the dark, in the earthquake, alone. And he calls out in Psalm 22 and he said, he said, God, no one has ever called on you and then you weren't there for them. Every person that's ever called your name, you were there. And I'm begging and I can't see you. You're nowhere. You're nowhere. They're piercing me. All of it was in the Psalms. Every bit of it. And you're not there. God rejected him. After sending 100% of his wrath, then he rejected Christ. And because Christ was rejected, we can stand accepted. Because that second, that moment that he did that, all of God's wrath turned away from us forever, forever and ever. And every bit of his kindness, propitious kindness, pointed towards us. And forever it will be. When you feel like you're having a good day, praise the Lord. When you're having a bad day, God loves you completely. There is no offense. You have not offended him at all. He does not hate you. You are not under probation. It is not something to where you're always thinking you should be doing better. I should be doing more. Every bit of God's love and kindness is towards you. So I would just end with this. If you are a converted, repentant sinner, please don't think that God is not loving you instantly. He sings over you. Though your mind be tortured in every way, know in the deep faith that God has given you that God is for you. And I do have to say this. If you are an unconverted, unrepentant sinner, for whatever reason, whatever you are pretending to be, please do not think that the wrath of God is not on your head.
please. Because what will happen is you will, you'll go into some kind of an opium delirium, thinking everything is right, everything is fine. If I do this, if I pay my tithes, if I'm nice to dogs, or whatever you think that means, that God will, at the end, weigh my sins as long as my good and bad out. It has nothing to do with that. All of God's rage was put on Jesus, and all of his love is towards his people. Let's rejoice in that today.